If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, a Kantar podcast now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got a special treat. Seth Godin author of 18 international bestsellers that have changed the way people think about work and have been translated around the world in 38 different languages. His new book, This is Marketing, You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See, is out this week. We recorded this interview in advance, and so we spent a little time talking about the recent Nike ad with Colin Kaepernick. But we could span a whole series of topics from you know, where marketing is going, what marketing really should be about. And you learn a little bit about Seth and he keeps his secrets pretty close on where he gets his glasses. So I hope you enjoy this show with Seth Godin. Well, Seth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Well, I should say congratulations on publishing This Is Marketing, the book. I've read almost every single page, I will say. It seems to highlight many of the core concepts that you've written about before in your previous books. Why did you feel the need to write this sort of compilation, if you will? Well, I'm glad you've read it because most people, for most books, you look at the cover, you look at the back cover and somehow by osmosis, you get the ideas. Writing a book is painful. Publishing a book is even more painful. And so I thought long and hard about whether I wanted to write a a full-length book after five years of not having done one. And what I found is that people have been handed the marketing keys, people who don't necessarily have the background, the money, the budgets, all the stuff that professional marketers had for all those years. But now everyone is a marketer because everyone has access to a billion people online. And in the face of that, lots of people are trying to spread an idea, try to make things better, try to reach out and connect and lead and make a living. But they're falling prey to shortcuts and they're getting hung up a misunderstanding of what marketing even is. So I launched this thing called the Marketing Seminar and 6,000 people have taken it and it's been transformative. But a lot of people don't want to spend the time or the money to do a 100-day seminar. So I thought, well, why don't I just take the best of that, the stuff that's worked in that setting the best, and turn it fully into a book that'll last for a while that I could hand to people, that other people could hand to people and say this, this is how we're going to make things better. Hmm. I like that. I like that. And as I was reading the book, it seems like you're maybe overtly, it's, it shouldn't even say it seems, you're overtly kind of trying to set a new bar for marketing and marketers. Possibly, not to put words in your mouth, a more noble and you know virtuous path. Are you trying to counter something uh, or something you oh, see? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to counter a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I think that people are inherently good. If you talk to people about the change they want in the world, if you talk to them about what they care about, most people want to make things better not selfishly, but generously. And then they start marketing and they act like a selfish, narcissistic, short-term thinking pig. And they (laughs) do that because they think they're supposed to. They do that because they think they have no choices. And all the other professions, you don't see accountants who suddenly become bad people because they're accountants. And you don't see production engineers, et cetera, et cetera. Why do marketers race to the bottom? And they race to the bottom Because you can find a short-term win by tricking people, by cornering people, by pressuring people. And the thing is, you can't keep it up. And because you can't keep it up, that short-term win is usually followed by a lot of unhappiness. And what I'm trying to outline for people is that you can make things better. And you can make them better by doing this thing I'm calling marketing, which is the act of making change happen. I love that phrase of making change happen and this notion of doing better. I mean, the way you describe the challenge, it it sounds like we're all addicted to some sort of drug as marketers or prone to being addicted to the short-term drug. Yeah, I mean, capitalism compounds it. So if you imagine it's a race and people see that there's only going to be one winner and someone starts cheating and they get a little bit ahead then someone else says, well, I have no choice but to cheat a little bit more. And so all the cheating keeps compounding until everyone's cheating all the time. And so what happens in marketing is someone shows up, makes an insane promise, spams the world, misleads people, 
and they make a sale. And that's a sale that didn't go to somebody else. So that other person says, whoa, that's not good. I'm going to have to cheat too. And thus the race to the bottom. And the problem with the race to the bottom is that you might win. The second problem is you might come in second, which is even worse. So I'm arguing that you can race to the top. You might not reach everyone. You know, that if you look at what's the number one best-selling piece of music any given week, or what's the best-selling kind of food, it might not be the food or the song you would have been proud to make, right? That Pringles or Doritos or whatever it is aren't necessarily good for the planet, but that's how you get mass by pandering to people. But guess what? There's plenty of room way in the middle of the market for you to make a positive difference without necessarily being number one in market share, but by being number one in impact instead. It's an interesting energy provocation, I guess, is the best way to say it. You know, there is so much polarization in the U.S. today in particular, and I, I think this is probably not just a U.S. issue. It seems to be kind of trickling across the world, and, and maybe the U.S. is just the secondary market for this to be happening. If you look at things like Brexit and things like that, but, and even you're seeing in advertising now with recent ad Nike put out with Colin Kaepernick. And in the book, you talk about, which kind of, I wrestled with this thing, so I'll get to it. But the, in the book, you talk about that we're not faking it, right? There's this notion that, you know, when somebody we don't agree with says something that we vehemently disagree with, we go, you know, they can't possibly think that. And your call is that, no, they, they do. That's who they are. And there was this passage, which I would like to read if it's okay, just because it's, it's so good. And the passage is, if we can accept that people have embraced who they have become, it gets a whole lot easier to dance with them, not transform them, not get them to admit that they're wrong, simply to dance with them, to have a chance to connect with them, to add our story to what they see and add our beliefs to what they hear. And I've been thinking about that for days now. <laughs> Tell me more about what you're trying to trying to accomplish with this notion that they're not faking it and that you know our goal is to figure out how to dance with them. Okay, well, I'll pick Brexit because I don't know nearly as much about it as my own culture and because neither you nor I live in the United Kingdom. That's right. So if we look at Brexit, somebody who is a thoughtful, trained economist looks at the math and says, Without question, the economy of the United Kingdom will take a long and possibly permanent hit by opting out of the European Union. And it was irrational for the people who voted for it, who will be hit the hardest, to want this to happen. So they shrug their shoulders and say, I don't understand. Well, if you're going to be a marketer, you have to learn to find empathy. And in the book, I use this term that I just learned called Sonder which is the realization that other people have a noise in their head the way you have a noise in your head and that everyone's noise is different. You can't just say, these people are stupid. There's no explaining it because they're not stupid and there isn't explaining it. It's just not something that can be explained with classical economics. That what some people wake up in the morning wanting is autonomy or nationalism. What they want is a very strong, certain leader. What other people want when they wake up in the morning is affiliation or coherence or open discussions and open borders. 
Now, those things don't have anything to do with economics. They're emotions. And you could apply those emotions to come out with one side or the other of just about any argument. That if Winston Churchill was around and he had been in favor of staying in the European Union, then a lot of the people who voted for Brexit would have voted against Brexit. Because what Winston Churchill represented to a group of people in the United Kingdom was strong, certain, authoritative leadership. That's an emotional choice. And so what we saw is that Brexit is not an economic proposition. It's a marketing proposition. It's storytelling. Does it resonate with who you think you are when you look in the mirror to say independent, strong, proud, my people? And a lot of people who voted for it, that's what they voted for. They didn't do the analysis of the economics because that's math. That's not marketing. Interesting. I was interviewing, I want to, I'm probably going to misattribute this, but I I was interviewing Phil Kotler about a year ago and we were talking about economics because he's an economics person by training. His PhD is in economics before he became a marketer and wrote books on marketing management. He said, you know, economics is the study of people and most economists don't even realize it. And he said, the thing that makes it even much harder is that people are prone to change and they don't act the way we expect them to act. And I think that is at the heart of what you're talking about. As you're teaching marketers to be better, you know, what's the implication of this on the marketing discipline itself? Well, you know, Kotler's famous because of his textbooks. Mm-hmm. And the textbooks are almost entirely about doing marketing to people. So you are in the corporation, you have money, there is a target market, you target them, you spend the money, and you use the ads you put in front of them to cause them to change. And I think the world has completely changed because number one, it's much, much less about ads than it ever was before. Advertising was a magic pill that we had for 70 years where every ad cost way less than it was worth. So if you bought a lot of ads, you had to do well. No longer true. Hmm. And number two is attention has completely shifted and attention is the scarce resource, not money. And if attention is the scarce resource, you don't get to market to anyone. If you're lucky, you get to market with them and for them. And that's not in Kotler at all. And that's not his fault. He was writing about a world where that was true, but it's shifted now. And so when we look at the big successes and the small successes, when we look at nonprofit fundraisers, or we look at politicians, or we look at corporations, what they do when they do marketing is fundamentally different than what marketing used to be. So if I look at Scott Harrison at Charity Water, Scott has raised a quarter of a billion dollars from scratch in about a decade. And if you compare that method of fundraising to the method of fundraising used by the American Cancer Society or Harvard University, they couldn't be more different. Because the way we market and spread ideas and talk about ideas and status roles and tension All of it is new now. And that's a great opportunity for someone who's not in charge. But if you are in charge, you're going to have to figure out how to shift because you're not going to be in charge for long if you don't. Interesting. Well, I I spent quite a bit of time with the book and I I think it was probably around halfway through and I may be a little slower, dimmer than some folks. I realized that more than talking about marketing, you were talking a lot more about what I would classify as the human condition or human nature. Do you agree with that? And I mean, it seems like there's a profound influence that says to be a marketer, you have to understand humans. 
And the thing that's surprising is that that's surprising. <laughs> I know. You know, the second thought I had was, of course he is, right? <laughs> and the thing is, it's so much easier to teach a course at Stanford or to write a book that says, here are the mechanics. You can be an operative in a system, a cog, where you apply X and you get Y. And you're a machine operator because that's safer. You don't have to take responsibility if you're just doing the system. Mm -hmm. And it's all changing too fast for us to have a system because what we've done, what the internet has done is exposed human nature over and over again, that as soon as the system shows up, it gets replaced by a new platform where human nature takes over again. Interesting. We talked about capitalism just a minute ago, and you also have another phrase in here, or two sentences, I guess I should say, that I really liked, which was the purpose of our culture is not to enable capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to build your culture. And I guess my question to you is, you know, doesn't that presuppose, I guess, your initial assumption in the beginning of this conversation, which is that people are genuinely good? Oh, let me think about <laughs> that. Okay, so... People coming together have done a couple things. They've self-governed, taken away the king and the dictator in many places, and two, created laws that enable corporations to do their stuff because the people say it's worth it because it helps us. It helps us to have corporations because corporations get us Frisbees and lawn care and buildings and food at the supermarket. So that's the deal. The deal is, corporation, you have all these advantages, and in exchange, you are going to do stuff that help us. Now, there are a few people, and I would say it's not more than 100,000, who benefit mightily when corporations do a little bit better. These are the CEOs, the significant shareholders. And they have pushed to say, corporations deserve special treatment because we need to make more money. And what I'm saying is, why did we start corporations in the first place? We didn't do it so the people who own corporations can make more money. Corporations aren't going to go away if they don't make more money. They're doing fine. We enabled corporations so that we could have a better culture. And so when we have one of these Ayn Randian conversations where we say, if it's not making money, it's not important, I say, you've made a mistake by focusing on what's easy to measure as opposed to focusing on what's important. And so if you want to be a marketer, what you've done is announced that you want to make change happen because that's all marketers do. We change the culture. That's it. And if you want to make change happen and you want to be a professional at it, then I think you get an obligation. And the obligation is, are you proud of the change you are making? Because if you're not, you shouldn't do it. And you shouldn't write it off by saying, well, I had to do that because the corporation made me. Got it. I love your perspective and the, the book was enjoyable to read. What sparked you to approach the world this way? Where does this come from, do you think, in yourself? Well, I decided a bunch of years ago that I was a teacher and I decided that the best, most comfortable way for me to teach would be to notice things and to try to explain them. And if I do it well, people will say, well, of course. And that's the goal is to uncover the obvious in a way that once people see it, they can't unsee it. 
And so if I go to a hotel and the shower is indecipherable and I can't figure out how to get in it without scalding myself, I try to understand how did that happen? What were the series of meetings that led to this shower being installed in this hotel? When I know perfectly well that someone could go to Home Depot and for $39 buy a shower we all recognize. So I'll write about it or I'll think hard about it and I'll think about what led to that. And over time, you know, it began with how can I sell more software for the software company I'm in in 1985, 1984. But it evolved to noticing lots of things that I care about in the world and trying to backtrack all the way to who made this change happen and why did they do it? Interesting. Seth, you are on this teacher path and you've written a lot over the years. Is there any advice or insight from your past books that you'd change today? My publisher has asked me to make new editions of many of my books. And the reason that I haven't done that is because then I'd have to do it again a month later. (laughs) So with each of the books I've written, I've tried to capture that moment in time. So when I wrote Permission Marketing, the web was barely around. When I wrote Purple Cow, we didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Insta or Snap. And what I've tried to do in my writing is make it, I don't know, universal enough in its concept that it's immune to changes in technology. And generally that has been true. I have definitely made predictions that were incorrect, usually about timing. Some things happened much faster than I expected. Some things still haven't happened yet. But I'm not embarrassed by any of the 18 books that came before. And the beauty of having a blog is when I want to write something fresh or new, I could just write it and publish it tomorrow. Nice. One of the things I was noticing as I was reading the book, this new one, This Is Marketing, is that there's very little numbers in your book. And what I mean by that is like numerical data to kind of back up your assertions and things like that. And I was reading it and realizing I don't think you need it. But at the same time, if you're you're teaching people that are maybe more numerically inclined, just curious, I'm sure there's data out there that you could use. Why are there limited numbers? Yeah, I love this question. It's great. And I have a two-part answer. The first part is this. Amazingly, more than half the people in the United States question the validity of the theory of evolution, even though there's thousands and thousands of pages of data and numbers (laughs) to prove that it is, in fact, the way the Earth came to be. And shockingly and scaringly, as a parent, huge numbers of people in the United States do not accept the fact that the Earth is getting warmer. And it doesn't matter how many numbers we show them, they don't get it. Why is this? Is it because they suffer from innumeracy? No, it's because stories are more powerful than proof. That stories, true stories, stories that resonate with who we are and how we got here, are much more likely to change our actions than numbers are. Now, the second half is that you are correct. There is a group of people who are completely numerate, who don't want to hear a story, and who will actually change their behavior based on numbers. And what's fascinating is that Jim Collins, who has sold 50 times as many books as I have, has enormous reams of data, just volumes of data that he goes through, which I don't. I just make stuff up. I notice things and I report it. Jim does the numbers. But if you talk to someone who has changed their behavior because of one of his books, they will never tell you it's because of the numbers. 
they will tell you it's because of the stories. So what I'm saying to people about my work is, please do not take my word for it. I'm just a guy noticing things. Don't take my word for it. Take your word for it. Figure out if this resonates with you. Figure out if when you look at your version of your world, if this lens makes things more clear, if you can explain the outcome of a debate or an election, if you can explain why Nike makes so much more profit than Saucony, if you can, I mean, go down the list. If my narrative helps you explain your world, then try it out. And if it doesn't, well, you've wasted $19. (laughs) So, well... You've talked many, many times, and even in this conversation about, you know, the notion of marketing is to make change. And I have a strong belief that I believe most of the initial change really needs to come from within an organization, influenced obviously by what's around us in the world and the people that we're trying to serve. But I don't know if you see it the same way, I mean, or how you think about to drive that successful change internally as much as you've talked about it externally. Well, internal marketing is still marketing, right? right? I mean, there's no difference. It's still two people. So when we think about how do we go to the meeting in the boardroom to get our budget doubled? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, what generally happens is someone shows up with a five-page spreadsheet and they have put a bunch of bullet points on a PowerPoint, and then they make their pitch based on the numbers as if it's a Harvard Business School case, and then they're surprised when their budget doesn't get doubled. (laughs) The person who does get their budget doubled, she shows up with the whole thing pre-wired because of the relationship she's built with the people who have to say yes. And her presentation doesn't have many numbers in it at all. It contains urgency based on stories. And she shows a one-minute video with six different customers looking straight in the camera talking about how they've left your company to go to somebody else's because you didn't have a certain feature set or interaction that they desired. And at the end of the meeting, she's created tension. She's used status roles to cause interactions to occur that allow humans to actually change their mind. And that's just marketing. It's exactly the same marketing I'm talking about throughout the whole book. You just did it to a market of five people. (laughs) That's funny. I had a mentor early in my life who had a master's of fine art and poetry, and he used to describe organizations as really appealing to three motivators, and they were lust, fear, and greed. And he said, you know, as I was pitching internal ideas, if I could appeal to two of them, likely to win. And if I could hit all three, it would be 
you know, whatever I wanted, I would get. <laughs> and I've used that in my, you know, my 20 plus years of my career now. And it it's such rings true in what you just described of storytelling and bringing to life the ideas. But can I add one to your yeah, list of three? Please, please. I'll add two. Beauty and safety. Hmm. I think that, you know, if we look at the run of the most valuable public company in history, beauty has been something that has driven a lot of what attracted certain kinds of talent to Apple. And then if you think about safety, in most organizations, most people will choose the safe path. Good point. Good point. Those are good ads. I'm going to add, I'm going to refine my knowledge set now. Thank you. Where do you see the greatest opportunity for marketers? I think that once you accept that we are marketing for people, not at them, and you realize that we are no longer in a manufacturing-driven world, that it's driven by software, it's driven by production on demand, and it's driven by micro-segments, the win is figuring out the dreams and desires and narratives of the people we seek to serve and making them come true, as opposed to trying to invent new demand. Right. So a great example of this is the success of Lyft and other car sharing services. That the reason that Uber spread so fast in the original cities it was in is not because it was cheaper than a cab. It spread because there was a magic button on your phone and you pressed it and a car arrived. <laughs> so there's beauty in that and there's safety in that because I will not find myself standing on a corner wondering where the cab is, wondering how long I will be waiting. That what they took away was the wondering part. And that magic, the beauty of that feeling, meant that they could have even charged more than a cab in order to get the first wave, their first 5% of their customer base involved. (laughs) And that knowledge happened deep within the organization. They didn't get it right at first. They didn't get it right at second. They got it right fifth or 10th in the revolution. But that's what we seek to do if we're going to make something important is show up with something that people didn't necessarily know they wanted, but that matches everything that they want. Interesting. Well, one of the things I love to do for listeners is to kind of turn the tide, if you will, a little bit and beyond the subject matter that we're talking about in your new book and and the content around marketing is to try to get to know you a little bit better. And so in that, I love this question, which is, you know, is there a moment or a experience in your past that has defined who you've become? We know a lot about the way narrative and memory develops way more than we used to. We still don't know enough. But what we know is that what actually happened is completely different than the story we rehearse. (laughs) If you tell yourself over and over again that something seminal happened to you when you were 14, then it's the thing that was seminal to you because you're repeating it is what, every time you repeat it, the memory gets rebuilt. Mm -hmm. And so if we had a time machine, I have no idea what it was really like the day I was 14 and my dad came home and said that his aerospace company where he worked had bought a company that made ski bindings. And the reason they had is because the founder and CEO had been skiing in Chile and broke his back in the lift line. 
someone had bumped into him. And so while he was in his hospital bed, he used his training in aerospace engineering to build a ski binding where that would not have happened. And so suddenly this company that made $4 million servotronic controls needed to sell $149 ski bindings. And I was the head of marketing at the age of 14 (laughs) because everyone else was a geeky engineer. And so I was rewriting their ads and stuff. And that led to me starting a ski club in Buffalo, New York, where I grew up. And I was the only kid who had his own ski club. You were supposed to have adults and chaperones, but my dad was great. He said, just go ahead and do it. And (laughs) how do you get, you know, if you're the nerdy outsider kid in high school, how do you get 90 kids in high school to pay the $80 a year to join the ski club so that once a week they can get on a bus and go up to Kissing Bridge and go skiing? And then that led me to co-founding with a few other people, a business in college that grew to 400 employees. And I was the one who was inventing the next thing we were going to do. And it wasn't for the money. We only got paid 50 bucks a week to run it. But it was for the thrill of saying, yesterday, there wasn't a snack bar. Now there is one and people are happy. We built that. And that habit of building it, putting it into the world, doing it because I could, not because I was getting paid to do it. That cycle I've discovered is the one that narrates the way I build my projects still. And then I add to that the fact that I became a teacher when I was 17, teaching style canoeing up in Northern Canada. And again, there's the problem of you can't force someone to learn how to paddle a canoe. They could just leave and go sailing instead. You've got to earn the enrollment of the person. And so when you come from this position of no power, it's way easier to become a better teacher than if you become come from the Cheech and Chong method of, I have a ruler, you're in my class, and I'll hit you if you don't listen to me. <laughs> That's what most corporations do with their marketing money. Right. And so my message since Permission Marketing, which I started doing in 1994, 92, has been, it's all optional. And if you want to come along, here's where we're going. And if you don't, I'm not going to bother you. Interesting. Well, I have a follow-up question because your dad placing, and I realized memory and your, your disclaimer around memory and how you remember it, but what kind of guy was he that he would allow his kid, so to speak, to chime in on some, such an important topic? Well, my dad and my mom were extraordinary and I was super lucky to grow up with them. My dad was an entrepreneur from an early age. He had to leave New York because he had a boat fiberglassing business. And the problem was the boats sort of leaked after he fiberglassed them. So that business didn't work out. And he ended up in Buffalo, which is not right next to New York City, which he thought it was. And he believed that his kids should learn engineering, should learn how things work, should make stuff and do it themselves. And it could be making things with wood, but it was more likely making a project with the community. Mm -hmm. And he was the volunteer head of the United Way, and he was the volunteer head of the local theater. So I grew up in this home where, you know, my mom was the first woman on the board of the museum. We just expected that that's the kind of stuff you would do. And I was a free range kid through and through. My parents both encouraged me to do crazy stuff and I did it. And I survived and it could have just as easily gone badly, but it went well and I'm glad it did. Great. 
what fuels you? What keeps you going to do what you do every day? Well, it's talking to people like you and seeing what happens when this work falls in the right hands. Mm. That people, you know, ask me which writers inspire me and stuff. And mostly it's my readers who inspire me. It's people who take one of my ideas and build a billion dollar company or build a massive nonprofit or build something that's really tiny but important. And by important, I mean, it makes a change that matters. And so when someone comes to me and says, I did X, Y, or Z, and I made a lot of money, but they also left a trail behind that's sort of disappointing, that doesn't fuel me. But it really fuels me because I think about how you don't need very many people to change the culture. And if I can help the culture changers make the culture better, then I feel like I've contributed something. Well, you've you talked about your your childhood and growing up a little bit. You know, what advice would you give your younger self? Well, see, the, here's the thing: <laughs> all the mistakes, all the failures. If I hadn't had them, I couldn't be me. So I would give myself no warnings. I would not say, "Oh, you know, buy Yahoo stock," or "Don't talk to that person because they're really going to hurt you in the long run." All I would say is, "It's going to be okay." <laughs> That's good advice, though. That's really good advice. Most marketers, and you are a prolific marketer, are students of the craft and the trade and follow what's going on around us. You know, Are there brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think others should be taking notice of? Well, all of us now see thousands of messages a day. So I don't think you need to see more messages. I don't think you need to see more examples. Mm-hmm. I think you need to look at them differently. You need to say, where is this person or this organization creating tension? Where are the insiders and the outsiders? What does the tribe think? Are they focused on affiliation or domination? Are they changing or are they standing still? And so you can look at any marketer through those lenses and you will learn as much as if you just focus on one or two master marketers. What do you, a quick follow-up, maybe an aside, I hope not a distraction, but what do you think of the recent Nike work where Colin Kaepernick is highlighted? So Nike has made billions and billions of dollars by connecting two things that are pretty much unrelated, which are fabric and rubber to personal achievement, pride, Teamwork, individual accomplishment, pheromones, love, sex, et cetera. And, you know, if an engineer was marketing Nike, the ads would say, these sneakers weigh 2.4 ounces and have a, a resilience of seven, right? But what Nike has done almost from the beginning has is tell the story. And that story is about outsiders and insiders. It's about leaders and followers. It's about winning and losing. And they have profited mightily from that story. And that story has had some positive side effects and some negative ones. But they have to keep telling the story in order to keep standing for what they stand for. Because now that people see how successful they've been, other people are trying to steal their story. And so Nike has to refine it. And they have to figure out how to continue to put a face on it. So the face of Michael Jordan is different than the face of Colin Kaepernick. And 
Nike famously never backs down. And I don't expect them to back down here. I think that the respectful way they are telling the true version of Colin's story as a citizen is one that I applaud. And I hope that what they're going to do is leave behind a side effect of people, kids, adults realizing they have more power than they thought they did. And that maybe you don't exercise that power just by being able to score more goals than other people, but you do it by being able to be a leader instead. Mm. I agree. I agree. And I think they're keen in on, you know, to use your, your terminology, affiliation, right? And being affiliated with people, but also lighting up the affiliations that others have that believe the things that the people highlighted in the ads uh, believe or have experienced those setbacks or struggles throughout their lives as well. So I think, I think it's a powerful piece of work. I'm curious to see. I, I feel like it's a long-term play, though. Um, everyone's beating them up in the short term, but it's a long-term play. Oh, yeah, I hope so. If they were hoping that it would work in two weeks, they were mistaken. <laughs> right, definitely mistaken. Well, I have one fun question, and then I want to get your crystal ball out. These were all fun questions. I just asked <laughs> Well, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Kevin, I'll name him, and I would keep his last name anonymous, but Kevin wants to know, told him I was going to be interviewing you, and he said, where does he get his glasses? So I have to ask you, where do you get your glasses? You can ask. I will tell you that the person that I bought them from, I had to have them leave the city so that he would not tell anybody because if everyone started wearing my glasses then I'd have to go find new glasses. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Okay. So it's still a mystery. It is. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's the one question I couldn't get an answer. Okay. Gotcha. So, all right, well get your crystal ball out and luckily you have great glasses to look through that crystal ball. Where do you see the future of marketing? And maybe it's a hope and maybe it's a fear. I don't know. This is the future of marketing. What do you mean? I mean, there is a desire among a tiny group of people to know what the next big thing is. Because there's a belief that if you could just get in on the next big thing, you could ride it for a good long time. Mm. But since 1996, this has been the next big thing. The people who started in 1996 asking me what's next, <laughs> if they had done what I had suggested in 1996, which is earn permission from people who want to hear from you, make ideas that are worth spreading, treat people with respect and realize that attention is scarce, aim for the smallest viable market instead of yelling at the masses. I've been saying these things now for 20 years, and it's still true. So if you're waiting for augmented visual, whatever that stuff's called, virtual reality, that will somehow let you get back to making fun TV commercials for everyone that you could run on the Ed Sullivan show, it's not going to happen. This is the next big thing for the foreseeable future. I love it. We just need to put the work in. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry to say. Well, well, Seth, I can't thank you enough. This has been a fantastic moment getting to interview you and I uh, appreciate all your wisdom. Well, thank you. And I put up some excerpts from the book and a little video at seths.blog slash T-I-M. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. 
don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.